everyone, uh, welcome back to part two of the lecture. In this lecture, we're going to look at some areas of social inequality and social change, or the lack thereof, within the context of the assigned readings. So the first two articles that uh, we're going to look at are the one by um, Alexander and the other by McCoy. Both of these articles look at um, topics of race, particularly contemporary black experiences in the U.S. as a socio-historical experience. So, and so experiences that are rooted within the histories of North America. In general, these articles illustrate that the state-sanctioned violence and racial terror um, against black folks that we're seeing currently is nothing new. Uh, but rather um, illustrates a continuity of past and present racialized violence. The current state of our society in many ways is mirroring the past. As McKay, uh, McCoy notes, we are living in unprecedented times that are actually remarkably parallel to the last century. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time sharing some of what McCoy illustrates as these parallels between past and present. Uh, black experiences. McCoy goes over several defining events with, uh, throughout the 20th century for black people in America. The Spanish flu, the Red Summer of 1919, the Great Depression, and the Civil Rights Movement of the 1950s and 60s. Between 1918 and 1920, the world was overwhelmed by the Spanish flu. At the start of this pandemic, black folks were experiencing long-standing barriers to health care access, as well as higher overall rates of uh, mortality and morbidity than their white counterparts. Black folks lived in segregated housing, like we've talked about, were often left to take care of themselves, and received substandard care. The Spanish flu also began as the Great Migration, which started in 1916, was growing and racial tensions between whites and black folks throughout the country were heightening. Acts of terror um, against black people became normal and by the summer of 1919, the, the, rest, the relentless violence towards black folks converged in two months of nationwide anti-black violence known as the Red Summer of 1919. During this time, white, suprem white supremacist terrorism and racial riots took place in more than three dozen cities across the United States, as well as in one rural county in Arkansas. The Great Depression, the Great Depression began with the stock market crash in 1929 and lasted until 1939. With unemployment skyrocketing, it became common for black folks uh, who were working in low-wage jobs to be fired from these jobs traditionally reserved for them because whites were now seeking new employment after losing their better paying positions. Thus, in some urban centers, black employment unemployment rate rose extraordinarily high. This was also um, a continued, the violence from um, the 1919, uh, early 1900s uh, also continued as white men would often ambush and kill black men who took their jobs or use violence often as a outcome of their own anger and um, racism. The after effects of the Great Depression for black folks lasted for decades. By the 1950s, ongoing racial inequality, oppression, and terrorism 
against blacks via anti-black state-sponsored violence led to a boiling point within the community. The combination of these circumstances culminated in the start of the civil rights era. This period was marked by peaceful protests as well as police violence, with the media um, now beginning to capture this violence at um, increased levels. And finally, it led to the passing of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, only after much delay and the assassination of John F. K. in 1963. It declared, so the Civil Rights Act declared discrimination was illegal on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. This victory was quickly followed by the 1964 assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and in 1965, Malcolm X. Some better times occurred for some, but not for others. For example, the median household in, uh, levels improved, um, but the gap between whites and blacks still continued to widen. More black folks were completing high school education. However, they were still less likely than their white counterparts to earn a college degree. So the events from this last century, although I just kind of briefly touched on them, your article goes into more detail. Uh, they, pro they provide a context for understanding our current environment and highlight why current events may reverberate for some black folks. With the convergence of negative experiences and outcomes uncannily like those experienced 50 to 100 years ago. There are high rates of mortality and morbidity exasperated by a pandemic, disproportionate unemployment levels exasperated by the same pandemic, anti-black state-supported violence that came to a breaking point when uh, George Floyd was murdered by, the, by a police officer. I'm going to touch a bit more on three parallels, the Spanish flu and COVID-19, 20th and 21st century unemployment, and the Black Lives Matter movement with the civil rights movement. Like their experiences with the Spanish flu, black folks are experiencing COVID differently than whites due to larger social inequities like, um, like that we talked about last week. When compared to whites, black folks are at a higher risk of contracting the virus and are more likely to die if they contract the virus. The disproportionate impact can partly be attributed to factors that also impacted black folks during the Spanish flu. So poor access to health care, pre-existing medical conditions, the reliance for many on public transportation, a greater likelihood of employment in positions that increase exposure, and ongoing residential segregation, which causes some black folks to live in more densely populated areas. Additionally, black folks often experience poor treatment from healthcare providers, thus when combined with their experiences with racism, stigma, and social inequalities, their vulnerability to uh, negative health, out health outcomes increases. Current black uh, unemployment is also exa exasperated by the pandemic, similarly reverberates unemployment throughout the 20th century, which was um, also uh, shaped by the Spanish flu and the Great Depression. During the Great Recession of 2007 to 20, 2009, black folks experienced unemployment numbers higher than the national average. Many black folks also experienced home for foreclosures and lost up to 48% of their net worth, which was already at levels far below their white counterparts. 11, year, 11 years later, black folks were still experiencing the after effects of this recession, and the COVID-19 recession has been additive and led to worsening outcomes. However, 
It's not the same experience as the Great Recession. For instance, during the COVID-19 pandemic, many blacks were laid off because they were less likely to be working in positions that allowed for teleworking or working from home. However, there were also they were also more likely to be working in essential jobs like grocery stores, public transit, postal services, which ultimately increases their likelihood of contracting COVID-19 or working in positions without health insurance. The resulting economic destabilization has been similar to what black folks experienced during the Spanish flu pandemic, um, which in that it further exasperated pre-existing inequalities, like we talked about last week. While we're seeing continuity between the tragedies and racialized state-supported violence of the 20th century today and the 21st century as well, there is also um, positive parallels of a growing civil rights movement as reflected in the Black Lives, La- Black Lives Matter movement. The Black Lives Matter Global Network was founded in 2013 following the acquittal of George Zimmerman, the man who followed, shot, and killed Trayvon Martin, a 17-year-old black teenager who was walking home from his local store. Trayvon's murder inspired BLM's goal of building local power and intervening when black communities were inflicted with state and vigilante perpetuated violence. Throughout the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom, BLM's mission is to eradicate white supremacy and build local power to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by state and vigilantes, as I've mentioned. Since its founding, there have been numerous high and low profile murders of black people by law enforcement throughout the country. During the COVID-19 pandemic, a time when access to media has been at an all-time high, like we talked about last week, Many Americans repeatedly witnessed the murders of Ahmaud Aubrey and George Floyd and heard the 911 call made by the boyfriend of Breonna Taylor after she was shot eight times by police and left to die in her own home. The murder of George Floyd in particular has been identified as a tipping point for the current galvanization and worldwide uprising demanding that Black Lives Matter. George Floyd was casually murdered on camera by a policeman after being accused of using a counterfeit $20 bill. Innocent until proven guilty in a court of law was not the default. State-sanctioned violence was the default. While only time will tell if the current momentum results in the necessary long-lasting changes in the U.S., it is clear that the world is witnessing a civil rights movement, similar to or drawing on similarities of that with the civil rights movement in the 60s. The chapter you were assigned by Alexander shares similar experiences or reflects on um, similar experiences. Alexander discusses how the original publication of her book, The New Jim Crow, was published one year after President Obama's inauguration, a time when the United States was awash in post-racialism discourse. Black History Month events revolved around, look how far we've come, and the reflection was that if Obama could win the presidency, anything was possible. It reflected the the mantra of, we've come a long way and we're on the right track. The dominant mainstream view and understanding fit into the liberal theory that was discussed previously, one of natural progression, continually moving towards positive change. No one wanted to hear that the American nation remained trapped in a cycle of reform, backlash, and reformation of systems of racialized social control. However, 10 years later, the racialization of America can no longer be denied or made invisible. 
After eight years of Barack Obama in the White House, a man who embraced the rhetoric of civil rights movement, America elected a president who embraced the rhetoric, the rhetoric of, and politics of white nationalism. Although police brutality has always existed, contemporary America reflects a time where police killings of unarmed black people, particularly black men, are a regular staple of the daily news. In a sense, everything has changed and nothing has changed. The politics of white supremacy, which defined the United States' original constitution, have continued unabated, repeatedly and predictably engendering new systems of racial and social control. Just a few decades ago, politicians vowed to build more prison walls. Although there is now more support for prison downsizing, downsizing and money has begun flowing to criminal justice reform, today they promise border walls. In 2010, politics of white supremacy had temporarily been driven under down, un, been, had temporarily been driven underground, and the war being waged on communities of color was less visible. Today, racial bigotry, fear-mongering, and scapegoating are loud and clear through politics of Trumpism and fake news. Back in the 1980s and 90s, Republican, Democratic and Republican presidents leaned heavily on racial stereotypes of um, crackheads, crack babies, super predators, and welfare queens to mobilize public support for the war on drugs, a get, a get tough movement, and prison building boom. Today, the rhetoric has changed, but the game remains largely the same. Since 2010, the system of mass incarceration began to morph into something new and potentially uh, more dangerous, as, as Alexander explains. As caging on a massive scale became more and more expensive, the system reemerged as something new, a cheaper version of itself, the detention and deportation of immigrants. Illustrating the historical connection of these systems of mass incarceration and mass deportation. Immigration violations that were once treated as minor civil infractions are now major crimes, and everyday legal infractions ranging from shoplifting to marijuana possession to traffic violations now routinely trigger one of the state's most devastating sanctions, deportation. Both mass incarceration and mass deportation continue to be erroneously justified on the grounds that these systems are necessary to keep us safe. However, they continue the tendency of underestimating the corrupting influence of white supremacy and capitalism in our politics whenever black and brown people are perceived to be the problem. White people are generally allowed to have problems, and their problems do not become synonymous with white people as a population. They, they've historically been granted the power to define their problems as well as respond to them, as often as individuals. But people of color in this land of free, forged through slavery and genocide, are regularly viewed and treated as the problem, and are regularly awarded this um, individualized notions but become kind of a collective image of people of color as the problem. This distinction has made all the difference. Once human beings are defined as the problem in the public consciousness, their elimination through deportation, incarceration, or even genocide become nearly inevitable. White nationalism at its core reflects a belief that uh, that a nation's problems would be solved if 
Um, if only the people of color could somehow be gotten rid of or at least be better controlled. In short, mass incarceration and mass deportation have less to do with crime and immigration than the ways we've um, chosen to respond to those issues when black and brown people are framed as the problem. The systems of mass incarceration and mass deportation may seem um, unrelated at first, but they are both deeply rooted in the United States racial history, and they both have expanded in part because of the enormous profits to be made in controlling, exploiting, and eliminating vulnerable human beings. For many racialized peoples, United States in 2020 represents a new fearsome world. And yet, although white nationalist movements are openly operating in online and other spaces, including mainstream spaces, bold and courageous racial justice movements have also burst onto the scene, forcing a conversation about the racial history and present and this continuity that, um, that McCoy discussed. The next article we looked at by Van Wey was short, but provided another example of an area where the liberal functionalist understanding of constant and continuous positive change within industrialized societies is challenged, that of the LGBTQ plus community. So rights are not guaranteed, and this article really illustrates that. They can be taken away, and social change and progress are not inevitable or an innate aspect of any society. This is illustrated in Trump's LGBTQ rollback of rights. The Obama administration made protections for transgendered populations in a Department of Health and Human uh, Services ruling protecting transgender patients against discrimination by doctors, hospitals, and insurance companies. So under the Obama administration and Section uh, 1557 of the Affordable Care Act, civil rights protections in healthcare were established to ban discrimination based on gender identity. Healthcare providers and health insurance companies were thus required by law to provide medically appropriate treatment for transgender patients. Additionally, a series of broad Obama-era regulations had loosened the legal concept of gender, recognizing it primarily as a choice and not determined by sex at birth. However, since 2017, uh, the Trump Trump administration's war on reversing those regulations and its attack on LGBTQ plus civil rights have been blatant. For instance, in December 16, uh, in December 2016, conservative federal judge Reed O'Connor issued a preliminary preliminary injunction against Section 1557 to set in motion the ability to once again discriminate against transgender people, and it was uh, reopened in 2018. Also in 2018, the HHS set forth to adopt an explicit and uniform definition of gender under Title IV as either male or female, unchangeable, and determined by the genitals that a person is born with, according to the New York Times. Even at the state level this year, Idaho set forth two anti-trans laws in March. The Department of Justice sought to ban trans girls from high school sports in Connecticut and criminal penalties for transition care to trans for transitioning care to trans minors was being were being considered in, in South Carolina. First proposed in May 2019, Trump's new law will return to the will return to the government's interpretation of sex discrimination according to the plain meaning of the word sex as male or female and as determined by biology.
What this means is that healthcare providers could turn away anyone they perceive as trans or gay. Hospitals uh, would also will also be um, now permitted to refuse to respect someone's gender identity in making room assignments, and insurance companies can now enforce bans on hormone, repla- hormone replacement therapy, gender-affirming surgery, and all transition-related medical care. So these are obviously draconian policies and represent vicious attacks on the LGBTQ community, which have installed paralyzing fear among transgender patients, particularly because it is the, w- the worst time to have healthcare rights removed amid the threat of COVID-19. Even if hospitals don't end up acting prejudiced, the mere fact that discrimination is now legal will absolutely drive reluctancy in the trans community for seeking care or getting tested for COVID-19. So what we're seeing in um, what this article illustrates is that we're seeing undoing of historical rights rulings made under the Obama administration, which is particularly worrisome given that trans people in general already experience an incredible amount of discrimination and mistreatment and continue to experience discrimination even with policies that make this discrimination illegal. Further, it also um, illustrates that rights that you come to um, count on or that you think represent change or that should just already exist can be taken away and um, are not guaranteed. Okay, so finally we're going to um, we're going to look at social change and mobility within the context of education, uh, particularly postgraduate education. So Wakeling and Lawrenson's article approaches mobility and social change by examining the relationship between social origin, postgraduate degree attainment, and occupational income in the UK. I wanted to look at this article because the findings um, may be particularly of interest for contemporary students. Although it focuses on the UK context, the increased role of postgraduate degrees in reproducing inequality may be of similar importance within the Canadian context. So Wakeling and and Lorison investigated the relationship between social origin, postgraduate degree attainment, and occupational outcomes across five British British age group cohorts. So it was looking at different age groups. So that's important. Overall, what they found was a marked strengthening of the effect of class origin on degree and occupational attainment across age cohorts. So meaning... Um, class of origin, the relationship between class of origin and degree and occupational attainment, um, that that relationship is increasing in importance across age groups. So the young, for the younger age groups, it's becoming more important. Well, for older, well, for older generations, there's little or no difference by class origin in the rate at which first degree graduates attain po- uh, postgraduate degree. Those with working class origins in the youngest age group are only about 28% as likely to obtain a postgraduate degree when compared with their peers from privileged origins. So meaning uh, among the younger age cohorts, those from privileged origins are more likely to get a postgraduate degree than those of working class origins. So their research begins to to summarize, their research, their research begins to demonstrate the increasing importance of postgraduate degrees in reproducing socioeconomic inequality in the wake of the substantial expansion of undergraduate and postgraduate education.
The last quarter century of the UK saw a rapid growth in postgraduate student numbers, growing from about 15,000 in 1962 to well over half a million in 2010. Postgraduates now comprise a greater proportion of the total student body, almost uh, one quarter in 20, 2010, a pattern that is repeated around the world. Yet, even though this is obviously becoming uh, an important topic, research on social inequality and stratification has almost exclusively focused on undergraduate participation. This research, this undergrad research, has established um, a near ubiquitous relationship between social class origin, ed educational attainment, and social class destination. It has been argued that increased education tends to reduce inequality, but only to the point where the advantageous group approaches saturation. So, it just so increased education will not um, always will not continue to increase inequality. There is a point where um, this um, becomes saturated. So that is when the most when the most advantaged. Um, approach very high rates of participation in education, there's little scope for further expanding their entry and disadvantaged groups begin to catch up. Expansion in terms of access to education can lead to an emergence or an emphasis on horizontal differences within that level so that not all degrees are treated the same. Thus, as access to initial higher education in the form of a first or undergraduate degree, so as that access um, expands overall, inequalities begin to increase again related to particular subjects, types of qualifications, or sets of institutions as the labor market becomes saturated. With this in mind, two predictions about postgraduate education were made. Um, by Wakeling and Lorison. First, the expectation of expansion seen at undergraduate levels would prompt expansion at postgraduate levels. And second, if education inequalities are maintained, um, the expectation would be that expansion at undergraduate levels would see a corresponding increase in inequality of access to postgraduate study. In other words, on the back of undergraduate level expansion, postgraduate participation will grow, but it will grow disproportionately among the most socially disadvantaged groups. Looking first at class origins, undergraduate and postgraduate qualification, Wakeling and Lorison's findings reconfirmed some very long-standing findings for the UK and elsewhere that the proportion of working age population qualified to degree, to degree level has been rising over time. So that's something that is known, that um, more and more people are getting uh, a degree. Older cohorts are less likely to hold a degree than younger cohorts, um, declining with, so rates decline with age. So the older you are, the older the cohort, the less likely they are to have a degree. They also found that increases in participation have benefited those of all social origins, but that social class differentials in degree attainment have remained fairly stable across four decades. Looking instead at the prevalence of postgraduate degrees among the working age population, the picture changes somewhat in terms of not as steep of an increase, meaning as, as there as as age cohorts are getting younger, the, the, the amount of degrees that each cohort is getting is not um, increasing at the same level as undergraduate degrees. 
Entry to postgraduate degrees is almost always restricted to those already in possession of a first degree. So you have to have an undergrad degree or a first degree to go to postgraduate studies. When relatively few people hold the first degree, then there is unlikely to be much of an advantage to holding a postgraduate degree. However, when a, and, that, and that's what you see in older cohorts, so when there's fewer people that have an undergraduate degree, the, um, the advantage of having a postgrad degree is lower. However, when a first degree is more common, as is the case with younger cohorts, then the relative advantage of a postgraduate degree increases as a means of distinguishing oneself from others in the labor market. Research among graduates has highlighted a perception that exists among younger cohorts that a degree is not enough. However, they also found that entry into a postgraduate degree actually declined relative to the increase in first degree holders, which may explain why postgraduate wage premium continues to increase even while supply of postgraduates increases as well. Turning to patterns of growth by social class origin, uh, they also found that postgraduate degree holding among those from higher social class origins increased among young, younger cohorts. The trend for those from uh, lower social or class origins track a similar trend among older individuals but trails off after mid-70s births. Those from intermediate social class origins see little change over time. Ultimately, among the oldest group, those who would most likely have attended university in the 1960s, between a fifth and one quarter of the first degree graduates also hold a postgraduate degree. There is little difference across social class origin, with intermediate origin graduates actually, graduates actually having a slightly higher rate of qualification than those of other backgrounds. Their research then illustrated an emergence and then steepening of class of origin differentials with each successive cohort. So meaning there are small but not statistically significant differences between higher origin graduates and others among those ages 53 to 62. These become more pronounced for graduates aged 43 to 52 before settling into a sharp and recognizable pattern of social class inequality for the two younger cohorts. Ultimately, as prevalence of first degree increases, which happens over time within younger cohorts, the possession of a postgraduate degree, degree seems to become a site for the reproduction of social class inequalities. Having first looked at the relationship between social class origin and entry to postgraduate education and its change over time, Wickling and Lawrenson then turned to consider the social class destinations of postgraduate degree um, graduates. Results similarly confirmed existing understanding. First, subject matter was found to be important. Further, women graduates experienced a, substan a substantial difference disadvantage in obtaining the highest socioeconomic status classification. While this disadvantage was found to reduce across cohorts, um, so for the younger cohorts this disadvantage was lesser, it nevertheless remained stark even among the youngest groups. Further, graduates from black, Asian, and other minority ethnic backgrounds were found to be less likely to obtain the highest social class destination, again confirming other um, previous studies. It appeared that for all except the youngest cohort, a postgraduate qualification improved the chances of high, um, higher social class destination regardless of social class origin.
Overall, Wakeling and Lawrenson's research found some evidence to suggest that while postgraduate classifications may not be the new frontier of social mobility, they definitely are a new frontier of social mobility in the UK. However, they remain something of a social mobility niche as the scope for postgraduate qualifications to improve the life chances of more than a small minority of the most disadvantaged in society is limited. Nevertheless, this is a niche which, which undoubtedly has grown in recent um, year, grown in importance in recent years, and we see that social class inequalities extend beyond first degree into entry to postgraduate degree. Interestingly, their research showed that um, uh, women's remarkable progress in, in attaining first degree qualifications had not, or at least had not yet, extended into postgraduate degrees. When investigating patterns across age groups, they found that among older groups, social class of origin um, was had a statistically insignificant relationship with post-degree, postgraduate degree attainment. However, successive age groups see social class inequalities emerging and uh, emerging and steepening, with the youngest groups seeing a sharper and more statistically significant difference across social class origins. So as attainment of undergraduate qualifications overall and among disadvantaged social classes increases, social class inequalities also start appearing in post-degree, postgraduate degree qualifications. It seems then that reduced inequality of educational opportunity at first degree level drops in parallel with increased inequality of educational opportunity at postgraduate level. So you have inequality reducing at um, first degree level in parallel with inequality increasing at post degree level. So social class inequalities not only persist at postgraduate level, but also have widened over time. Yet again, this educational, this education-based example demonstrates that the qualities of social stratification and inequality are not teleological. They morph as they morph, or they can be amplified um, given the social uh, and historical context. Within this education example, inequalities which seem to be dissipating in the long term, like undergraduate degree attainment among individuals from various social class origins kind of are beginning to reappear in new ways. So inequality at um, postgraduate levels. All right, so that is the end of our final lecture.